Welcome to Sound Business, the podcast that reveals how sound affects your business outcomes, from the productivity and well-being of your staff, to your sales and profit, your brand value, your marketing effectiveness, your customer experience, and all your key relationships. I'm Julian Treasure, Chairman of the Sound Agency and five-time TED speaker, with over 100 million views for my TED Talks about sound, and I'll be your guide as we discover the power of sound to boost your business's success, as well as your own happiness, effectiveness, and well-being. Throughout this podcast, I want to give you some surprising, fascinating insights into the wonders of sound, not necessarily directly related to business, but enriching you with wonder and perhaps a new respect for the power of sound, which is all around us and affecting us all the time. This week is one of those weeks, and we'll be examining the sound of the universe. No small topics on this podcast. Some while ago, I was lucky enough to interview Professor Mark Whittle, who's made something of a study of the sound of the universe, from the way in which sound is deeply involved in some of the most amazing objects in the universe around us, to the core role sound played in the formation of galaxies, of stars, and of you and me. This interview starts at amazing and ends in true awe. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Mark to introduce himself. My name is Mark Whittle and I'm a professor in the astronomy department at the University of Virginia. You know, that means I do teaching and research. And my actual research area is more to do with active galaxies and, and black holes in galaxies. But I really enjoy and think that in the last 20 years, the cosmological story has become enormously rich and deep. And so I love to think of ways to talk about the creation of the universe and its evolution and ultimately our own emergence. And it struck me when I was thinking about this about 10 years ago that for the most part, we really only access the universe through images and pictures Scientists actually access it through spectra a lot more, which to a layperson are not quite so intelligible. But looking there actually is another way of contacting, in a way, the universe, and that is through sound. And there are, there are various places in space where you know, genuine sound waves move. For the most part, of course, space is pretty empty, and so sound waves are uh, at least the kind our ears respond to are not present. But inside stars, for example, there are pressure waves genuine sound waves which move through, and they actually have a beautiful and rich set of notes that are going on inside the star. Well, Mark, let's pause there for a second. So if we could exist inside of a star, we had some sort of a, uh, a cocoon that could protect us from the incredible heat there, what would we hear? The short answer is we would hear nothing because the frequencies of the sound waves are way too low for our ears to respond to. But in a way, that's a quirk of our own evolution in our own habitat. So it's nice to relax that restriction and just imagine upshifting or downshifting the pitch. So near the surface, for example, there are waves with about a five-minute period. So you could imagine upshifting them by maybe 10 or so octaves. And you would hear a whole set of notes. The, uh, the sun, or indeed any sort of spherical ball of anything, in this case hot gas, rings with a set of tones that are defined really by the fact that you have a finite object with a boundary in it. Uh, you could imagine a bell, same idea. It has a, a finite structure and, and boundaries, and waves move around it. And the bell can be set up in various modes of oscillation. The same is true in a star. So each star actually has its own um, voice, if you like. In fact, there's a whole 
whole discipline emerging now called astroseismology because it's it's kind of the same as earthquakes on the earth there are vibrations that go through stars but certainly the sun is is very well studied and a, a very full set of acoustic harmonics are now monitored for the sun and uh, has anybody actually pitch shifted these up and and created an audible file that we could hear the sun singing in that way well i wish i could point you to one i there are such things on the web and you probably have to just put them into google i can't direct you directly my own impression when i've done this before first sort of similar purposes to us now i've not been very satisfied with what i'm hearing and so and I've not myself invested the time to sonify the acoustic spectra. I'll mention parenthetically that it's possible to unpack the sound waves as a function of depth, actually right down to the core. So it's possible to get the sound speed and from that many properties of the sun right down to the center. So a bit like earthquakes have really revealed the interior of the earth to us, these acoustic waves which make the surface of the sun move up and down much like you know the waves on the surface of water perhaps move up and down it's not quite like that but it's similar they are a very powerful and very precise diagnostic of the interior properties of the sun just to give you an idea of the sophistication you can actually detect the rotation of the sun as a function of depth and as a function of latitude and it and it's not the same so um, when you get down far enough, the sun rotates as a big single object. But as you go further up, it rotates in a sliding manner. We call it differential rotation. Um, these are all actually very well understood phenomena. And would the sound at the surface be higher tones than the sound at the core? That would be kind of intuitive. Or is it the other way around? No, I think, uh, Julian, you have got your intuition correct there. <laughs> I should say, I'm not really a solar physicist, so I'm winging it slightly here. But my understanding is that the longer the, the sound waves, uh, to use a more sophisticated term, the L uh, value of the harmonic, the deeper the waves are traversing. Uh, it's just as you might imagine that the whole object oscillates with a much longer frequency. It takes longer for the sound waves to, to go right through the sun and out the other side than the sound waves which sort of bounce around just below the surface. And those are the five-minute oscillations, and the other ones are longer than that. Well, I love this concept of stars as bells. puts me in mind of It's a Wonderful Life from Clarence. Yes. <laughs> and uh, every time a bell rings, the little stars go, which is rather romantic, really. Now, if this is the case, if the sun is um, a ringing bell, then presumably the Earth is also. Yeah, I think you can use the, the metaphor of a bell for the Earth's earthquakes. I, I should say, actually, there are so-called global modes for the earthquakes and local modes. So when you have a, a big earthquake and you have a, a slipping and a sliding of, let's say, two tectonic plates and, and they break at a certain location, then sound waves certainly move out from that location that they spread around the Earth. Now, those would be, to be honest, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but I think those are more like local waves. But with a big enough earthquake, the entire Earth is set into a vibrating mode, and those are called global modes. Uh, it's actually those are the modes that are operating inside the sun. The sun's outer parts with its convection feed energy into sound, and it can set the whole star in the, or the sun uh, ringing with these global modes. And, and occasionally, um, for big earthquakes, the Earth can have global modes activated by that uh, seismic energy. Well, let's move out into the, the rest of the universe that we know of. And there are some titanic events going on, scales that are unimaginable to us all over the place. Presumably, there may be some other sounds in the universe where there are places with gas, for example, which would conduct sound waves. 
Yes. Loosely speaking, you could say the entire universe is a dilute gas. I mean, it's concentrated. It's very inhomogeneous. So stars are a very dense location. But then there are, for example, there are beautiful gas clouds, the kind that perhaps uh, we're familiar now from the Hubble images where stars are born. And those gas clouds are, um, well, they're nowhere near as dense as the air we breathe. But absolutely, sound waves will, will traverse those. And in fact, the propagation of sound is an important aspect or quality of those which determine whether in fact stars can or can't form. And for example, the sound waves depend on the temperature of the gas and the density of the gas and so on. So although astronomers might not obviously frame it as an acoustic analysis, implicitly, as they try to understand how these big gas clouds function, it is actually an acoustic dimension is, is, is relevant there. And again, I'm fascinated to imagine if we could teleport ourselves to the middle of one of those, like the pillars of creation or one of those amazing gas clouds out there, what we would be able to hear in that space. Yes, actually, I, I, think, I think I would be accurate in saying that whereas... If you were deep inside the sun listening, you might be hearing a whole set of notes. I think out in these clouds, it's much more of a cacophonous sound. There aren't individual notes that are prevalent over and above other notes. There's much more chaos. There aren't good boundaries to reflect the sound waves. And what I would also say is that quite a lot of the sound is in the form of uh, what are called shock waves. This is when a medium is being pushed faster than the speed of sound in that medium. Uh, so, for example, when young stars are forming, they're blowing out winds. In the same sorts of regions, actually, stars can explode, and then you have a very powerful shock wave which moves out. And as long as the gas is being driven faster than the speed of sound, it builds up this sort of wall of sound which moves out. Now, if you were to experience that acoustically, and again, remember, our ears would actually hear nothing. It's way too low a density to really push our eardrums. But if you could imagine sort of blowing our ears up to a large size so that we were matched, acoustically matched the medium, then we would hear every so often really loud bangs. I mean, the bangs would come by as these shock waves moved by, and they would come in a sort of unpredictable frequency. There's nothing particularly synchronous about it. It's just a sort of chaotic noise, I would imagine, interspersed with very loud bangs. So that's real sound happening in the universe. And the other sound I've heard a lot of people doing is pitch shifting radio waves or other vibrations in the universe, for example, pulsars, black holes, other things like that, and bringing them down into the audible spectrum so that we can analyze the signal. It's not real sound, but it's nevertheless very interesting. Yes, actually, as it happens, let's stick with the pulsar for a minute, Julian, because that's a lovely physical system. Because in that particular case, I may have misspoke myself earlier, in that particular case, you don't need to upshift anything. What you have here with a pulsar is a collapsed dead star, if you like, and um, it's not a very big object. You tend to think of stars as being huge and bigger than the Earth, but these pulsars are about the size of a city, but they contain about as much mass as a star, as the sun. So that's like, I don't know, 300,000 times the mass of the Earth crammed inside an object the size of a town. Uh, it's actually pure nuclear matter, really. It's just like a huge atomic nucleus. And the way it's born is by collapse. And because the core of the star was spinning slowly, when it collapsed, that collapse amplified the spin enormously. Just like a um, famous example is an ice skater who goes into a twirl with her arms out, stretched. And then as they pull their arms in, they speed up. Well, you imagine that amplified 
very greatly, then when this core is born, it's born spinning. And for reasons I won't go into, beams of radio waves are shot out of the poles of this uh, spinning object. And as the poles zip around, like a lighthouse actually, we see them flash, 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 flash as they come around. And these are, of course, picked up by radio telescopes. And then if you transform the radio signal into sound, you can hear a click, 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 click as the beam passes by. Now, I just gave you there, click, click, click. That's a very typical pulsar, a very old pulsar. It might be, oh, I don't know, half a billion years old. It's slowed down. They're born spinning fast, and then gradually they slow down. But if you find a young pulsar, for example, the most famous one that was found was the pulsar in the center of the Crab Nebula, this imploded, let's say, about a thousand years ago, so it's quite young. And then it sounds like this. It goes like that. So I'm trying to do that about 30 times a second. And in your mind, you have to imagine something weighing as much as the sun, the size of a city, spinning 30 times a second. And that's incredible. That is a prodigious object. I mean, that's a, if you were close to that, you would be utterly awestruck by seeing that spinning around. But that's actually not the fastest. There are some pulsars which can be spun up by being next to another star and the gas is transferred one to the other because the gravity of one pulls the gas from the other and it spins it up. And so when you listen to those, you begin to hear an actual acoustic note. I'll do it, for, I'll mimic it for you. Okay, so here's one that might be spinning about 200 times a second. So you go, so you can't actually hear the individual clicks because they're coming too fast, but you're picking up 200 clicks per second, and that sounds like a note on a piano. And the fastest one that I've heard is about 600 times a second. So that just goes, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. So it's just a note of 600 hertz, effectively. It is. But what you are dealing with is an object the size of a city spinning around 600 times a second. Now, if you took London and you spun London at 600 times a second, well, you can do the math. The surface is about 20% of the speed of light. So the whole thing is now no longer a spherical. It's in a form of an oblate spheroid. It's spun out. There's centrifugal bulge on it. I mean, it's just an incredible object generating this pretty much constant note. So in that way, cosmologists or astronomers are using effectively sound slash vibration in order to visualize an object, which we probably will never see. Yes, I'm always impressed by how actually scientists are able to ultimately get a view of the universe. The simple answer is yes, the thing may be a thousand light years away, we'll never get to look at it. But by probing these sorts of things and listening to the radio waves very carefully, perhaps it's pulsing in the optical as well, perhaps it's pulsing in the x-ray, you can begin to build up actually quite a clear picture. You're right, of course, no human will ever go and actually witness it up close. But these other vibrations that come to us really bring their own information and it allows you to reconstruct a pretty clear picture of what's actually out there happening. So perhaps with, a, with an Oculus headset, we'll be looking at these things pretty, pretty accurately and yeah. missing very little. And that'd be fascinating. Yeah. Let me ask you about black holes, Mark, and, and the kind of uh, signature they have. I've heard it sounds like ooh, ooh, being generated from the radio waves, presumably, or some sort of signature, because I thought nothing escaped from a black hole. Yes, thank you for asking that. Actually, Julian, it's a good question. So, and it, and it introduces yet another thing that's doing the vibrating. And this, in a way, is the most profound thing that could ever vibrate. And that is actually space itself. 
or slightly more accurately, space-time is uh, what's vibrating. So in the case of the formation of a black hole, there are actually multiple ways black holes can be formed, but in the particular one that's been looked at because of these lovely, they're called chirps, chirping sound, and uh, they, they go from being low to high in pitch, like that. Uh, what's happening is that two, it could be either two black holes are spinning around each other, they're orbiting around each other. Actually, there's another approach to this formation process, and that's two neutron stars um, are, uh, are orbiting each other, or perhaps a neutron star and a, and a black hole, those pairs. The point is, you have two very massive objects, they may weigh as much as a star, like the sun, and they are in orbit about each other. And um, although in principle, if, if Newton were looking at this, these two objects would just keep on rotating around each other, just like the Earth has been orbiting the Sun for four billion years, there's been no real change in its orbit. But if you up the mass of the two things, so you have now two stars, and they may be oh, half a million miles apart and orbiting once every hour, let's say, then in fact, the gravity of that system is so powerful that in fact it begins to radiate gravitational waves. And another word for that, another way of looking at that through perhaps the lens that Einstein would look at, not Newton, is that the space itself is wiggling uh, and is being radiated away at, in fact, the speed of light. And what happens is that drains energy from the orbiting objects. And if you take energy out of two orbiting objects, they get closer together and they start speeding up faster. And that makes even more powerful waves and that takes more energy away. And so they come a little closer to each other. So they speed up and the frequency begins to increase. And so you end up with this rapid runaway process whereby the objects get closer and closer. Now, let's just put some numbers in here. So each black hole might have a size, if you like, it's Schwarzschild radius of maybe, say, three kilometers. And they might be a thousand kilometers apart, uh, and orbiting maybe once every uh, a second, perhaps. So you get a gravitational wave moving out with a period of one second. But gradually, these things get closer and closer until they're zipping around each other at 30 times a second, 40 times a second, 100 times a second. And then finally, their event horizons merge in a much more tumultuous merger process, and they become a single black hole, which then settles down quite quickly. Uh, it takes just a few milliseconds to the thing to settle down into a single black hole. And that whole process has pumped out these gravitational waves. If you were in a spacecraft at a sort of safe-ish distance, uh, you would notice your spacecraft being squeezed and stretched and squeezed and stretched and in a sort of, uh, in an oscillatory way. Uh, it would be quite a sort of bizarre sensation. I don't know enough to know whether your gut would feel it, you know, whether your body would feel it. Depends probably how close you were to it. But what's happening is this, the nature of space itself is being tugged on by the gravity of the black holes. And that, of course, those waves can be put into sound so that we can hear it. Now, when I say put into, I just mean um, a scientist can transform the waveform into an acoustic form, like can drive a loudspeaker so that we can hear it. And that's what generates these very characteristic uh, chirps. It's the... 
And what's happening is the, the stars are in spiraling and then they finally merge. There's actually a, quite a complex and extremely interesting waveform right at the very end. And if you're able to track that and measure it, uh, which scientists are trying to do using gravitational wave detectors they have to kind of if you like a telescope for these gravitational waves so it's a little bit downstream it's another 10 years perhaps before they achieve this but it's it's there's a strong intention to do it the form of that final pulse it's a complex sound wave if you like or complex gravity wave but it allows you to figure out the spins of the black holes the orbit shape the, uh, the relative masses of them all sorts of things it's a very very unique fingerprint, if you like, of the event which then generated this spinning black hole. Well, my mind is absolutely boggling uh, conceiving of that event and what goes on in our universe is, is just humbling, isn't it? Let's go then right back to the beginning because the universe, I think most people now agree, started in a Big Bang which some people I've heard say is a bit of a misconception because there wouldn't have been a bang initially. I'd love to know your conception of the role of sound in the Big Bang. I mean, I've heard it said that photons were coupled for the first 100 or 300,000 years, I think it was, give or take. So there wouldn't have been kind of detectable light in the plasma that was emitted. But of course, there were inconsistencies, which is why we exist, effectively. Uh, if it had all been homogeneous, there'd be no stars, there'd be no us. And those inconsistencies might have been expressed in sound waves if we'd been able to be in that plasma as the universe was, was in its very infancy. Perhaps you could enlighten me and everybody listening to this on what we would have heard if we'd been there at the, at the very start of the universe. Um, I can, I'll have a go, Julian, yes. I think one probably has to say at the outset that scientists are not yet fully they don't fully understand how or quite why there was this beginning this uh, big bang i mean we have great evidence that it something happened but quite why it happened and exactly what happened isn't isn't fully understood so let's just get uh, that sort of ignorance out on the table but our current understanding is that the universe did begin with this extraordinarily rapid uh, expansion of an extremely uh, actually dense and hot substance. The nature of that substance actually isn't very well understood. I'm going to give it a name. It's called the inflaton field, and this is the launching period that actually simultaneously both created the material in the universe and created its expansion. It is thought to be a very dense kind of space called an inflaton. Now, that initial event of rapid expansion since we're talking about sound here, I think it's probably fair to say it was a silent event, mainly because, in fact, the material is all receding from every part is receding from every other part. So there's no real compression waves yet. And so this creation and launching of the expansion was a sort of brilliant, bright, but silent event. It's really quite a beautiful idea, I suppose. Now, actually, in a very, very short period of time, much, much less than a nanosecond, uh, this material changed in its nature. And it changed primarily into a huge bath of light and particles, protons, electrons, quarks, gluons, the whole shebang, the whole list of uh, elementary particles. But really, after a few seconds, most of them died away. They disintegrated, let's say, and they formed this expanding gas of light 
and electrons and protons. Uh, so I should also add, excuse me, a very important component because it's important for the sound story. Uh, there were also particles which are still a little elusive to us, but they're dark matter particles. One of the crucial things about this entire medium that's expanding is that it isn't entirely smooth. It's inhomogeneous. A homogeneous something is, a system is something which is completely smooth. This system wasn't. It had slight locations of slightly higher density and regions of slightly lower density. The origin of that clumpiness uh, is a fantastic story to do with the operation of quantum fluctuations during the launching mechanism itself. It's felt that uh, deep down... Nature is inexorably quantum in its quality, and the, the quantum character of nature makes it unsmooth. At a deep level, it has to be vibrating, oscillating in certain ways. That oscillation superimposed or, or occurring underneath this launching mechanism seeded the universe uh, with this infinitely extensive pattern of patchiness and inhomogeneity in the material. What happens in the acoustic story is that as gravity begins to operate across space, then the regions feel this lumpiness and the gas that's close to a, a denser region begins to feel the, the pull of that denser region. And so the gas begins to move towards that denser region. Meanwhile, gas on the far side of the denser region is also moving in and gas to the left and to the right and to the top and the bottom are all falling into this denser region. Having fallen in, then the gas gets compressed and it bounces back out again. And then it turns around and falls back in again. And then it bounces and it goes back out again. And so where there are these denser regions, you have setting up spherical sound waves. And if the region is small, the time for the gas to fall in and bounce out is short. And so those sound waves are high pitched, relatively speaking, of course, compared to humans. This is all extremely low pitch sound. Um, these waves are falling in and out with periods of, of years or hundreds of years or in fact thousands of years. But because the patchiness contains both small, medium and large lumps, then the sound waves that are being created as this gas falls in and bounces out are high pitch, medium pitch, and low pitch. And it turns out that the maximum size for any particular region that's being sounding, that's actually creating a sound wave, is roughly the speed of light times the age of the universe. I'll just say that again because it sounds uh, difficult to follow. So a thousand years after the Big Bang, there are regions about a thousand light years across which are forming their first sound wave. And all regions smaller than that are already oscillating away, and you have sound waves that are oscillating with 100 years and 10 years and so on. So it starts high and it goes lower as the age of the universe extends. That's right. And the reason is, in a way, you could say that these, and sometimes I like to use the term an organ pipe, so these big regions which are being driven by gravity, the, the gravity is driving the gas into and out of, so it's not like bellows in an organ in a church, you have a bellow which blows air. Uh, in this particular case, the gas is being driven by gravity. But the concept is similar. In other, in other words, you have a big organ pipe makes a deep note, and a small organ pipe makes a higher pitched note. And all of these 
organ pipes are present in the universe. There are these regions of dark matter. This is the material which actually dominates the gravitational field. And so, you know, gravity acting on this inhomogeneous region is bringing sound to the universe. The whole universe is singing in this way. And as you just mentioned, Julian, the pitch of the voice drops because bigger regions of the organ can begin to act coherently. It's as if the universe is sort of waking up and becoming aware of larger and larger portions of itself as light and gravity, actually it's the gravitational field, which is what's traversing these regions. It can only traverse at the speed of light. So the universe is only operating coherently. It can only generate sound waves on regions smaller than the distance light can travel, gravity can travel since the Big Bang. And just as in nature, small things tend to have higher frequencies. So the bigger things tend to have lower frequencies, a mouse versus an elephant, uh, just just so with the universe. So it started to sing, presumably harmonizing with itself. And I'd like to ask you about that in a second, uh, at a high note, and then that note would have descended. Uh, what happens eventually to that note, Mark? Yes. So um, one of the most remarkable things about this is that it, it turns out that Actually, I need to use my language carefully. At any given moment, certain waves are stronger than others. And so in a way, you have kind of notes present. There are these harmonics. Now, just to contrast with the description that I gave earlier of the harmonics that are occurring inside the star, that's because it has a finite bell, which has a finite boundary between which the waves are oscillating. In the case of the early universe... The boundaries are not spatial because the universe extends, as far as we know, indefinitely. There are no edges to it. So we're not having waves bouncing off any edges here. The boundaries are in time. The beginning of the universe is one boundary. And then any given moment when you're looking at the universe is another boundary. And so waves can oscillate once or twice or three times or four times or an integral number of times between those two boundaries in time. And that's what gives the notes, the harmonics uh, in the cosmic sound. So it's a subtler, it's a different kind of harmonic, but there are harmonics. And this is one of the, just the delightful aspects of when you look, I mean, people don't perhaps recognize uh, straight away that we can see all of this happening because when you look very far away, you can look back in time. And fortunately for us, the universe is transparent. So we can look right back to the time when these sound waves were present. And it's called the microwave background, when you look out in space, you can see the, the glowing hot gas with the sound waves imprinted on it as the microwave background. So these are a form of radio waves. They're, they're between radio and infrared, and they're called microwaves. They come to us from all directions in the sky, because it doesn't matter which direction you look at. You're looking back in time, and you're seeing a wall of glowing gas. And imprinted on that wall, you can see the peaks and troughs of the sound waves. And sure enough, there they all are in different sizes, large, medium, and small, and you can measure the harmonics that are present. Let me break in there and ask you about harmonics. In music, there are certain natural harmonics which you get by stopping a string halfway down, that's an octave, and then there are numerical relationships between the length of a string and tones that we find pleasing, fifths and fourths and thirds and so forth. Would those have been in play at all in the early universe? In the case of the string that you just mentioned, the string is a very simple vibrating system. So if you halve it, as you say, you, you suddenly you double the frequency, you get an octave. Halve it again, you get an octave above that. If you take a third and um, third the length of the string, then you get a, another interval, a fifth, a musically a fifth. And so the harmonics that are in the cosmic sound 
uh, aren't quite so simple because the system that's vibrating isn't quite as simple as a string. But they're, they're roughly the same. And so you do end up with a, a sequence of harmonics which are approximately a fifth and an octave. But they're actually displaced a little bit from those pure equal interval harmonics. I should say one other thing about them, and that is that in the case of a string or a long tube of air, like in a horn, the harmonics are very, very well defined in frequency, and you don't get vibrations that are slightly to one side of that frequency. It's a very pure frequency. Even my voice that I'm using now, if you analyze the sound, you would find very pure tones within it because it's a it's a cavity of air, and that, that vibrates with a very specific pitch. But in the case of the early universe, that's not quite what happens. And so if you were to imagine placing yourself back there with suitably enlarged ears and, uh, of course, <laughs> a heat-resistant suit because the gas is several thousand degrees, then you would actually hear something which our own brain would interpret as noise. And that's because the harmonics are quite wide. They're almost an octave wide, actually. And so our brain doesn't pick out the notes, I think, a, way, a poetic way of looking at it is that's just a quirk of our evolution. We're very attuned to uh, very narrow harmonics. Probably, my guess is, because we're very attuned to listening to language, which has been produced by a voice box, which itself has narrow harmonics. Much of nature doesn't have quite the same fidelity and so, I don't know, the wind through trees or water going over a waterfall sounds much more like noise. Um, mm. And in the early universe, the mechanisms that are occurring there are not quite as precise as a vibrating uh, string. So our endpoint, as I've heard uh, cosmic microwave background radiation pitch shifted, is more like a white noise. It's more like a hiss. It is. And so you might like to play some versions that I've created, which show you this descending hiss. I mean, a simple way of describing it is it sounds a little bit like an aeroplane flying overhead, but the pitch is dropping. Now, that, that change in pitch is for a completely different physical reason. That's because of a Doppler shift, actually. But in the case of the early universe, the pitch is dropping because, uh, you know, larger organ pipes are being sounded as time passes. Well, let's have a listen right now to this oralization that you've created, which is, I guess, just a little bit compressed in time. It gives us an impression of, of that process. So let's hear that now. Yeah, so that was about... 400,000 years in a few seconds. And of course, the actual pitch of those notes was about 50 octaves deeper. And so the final pitch there that you hear, in truth, the, the wave period was about uh, 400,000 years long. Um, wow. So that's a sound wave. Yeah, that would be one huge sound wave. That's right. Can I tell you what those sound waves turn into? Please do. Obviously, in order for a sound wave to, to even function, you must have a source of pressure. There needs to be something pushing on particles to make them move along in a sort of crowd surge manner. That is what a sound wave is. And it turns out in the early universe, even though there are indeed electrons and protons, the main source of pressure is, in fact, light. And so uh, these pressure waves, they're true sound waves, but they're being driven by the pressure of light. Great surges in brilliance would be one way of thinking about it. The pressure of light. Yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar with light ever exerting pressure. Oh, indeed. Gosh. Okay. So imagine turning a flashlight onto your face 
actually what you feel mostly, I mean, if you had your eyes closed, so you wouldn't even, you know, see the light, uh, what you would feel mainly is the energy of the light. But those photons actually carry momentum, and that exerts a force. And so if you have enough of them, then uh, the force can be significant. Now, back in the early universe, um, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, there are only about 200 electrons and protons per cubic centimeter. That's per sugar cube volume. Now, them hitting you and colliding don't make much pressure. On the other hand, in that same cubic centimeter, there are actually 200 billion photons of light. It is exceedingly bright. It's about as bright as if you dove into the surface of the sun and just looked around you. It's that bright. So when you have 200 billion photons and only 200 electrons, then the photons carry most of the punch. They push the gas mainly. But a beautiful thing happens about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. The expanding gas cools and it cools past a critical temperature to about 3,000 degrees which in glowing terms is about orange-yellow hot, that temperature is cool enough now for the electrons to get caught and captured permanently by the protons to make hydrogen gas. And hydrogen gas itself is transparent, whereas the free electrons and protons before that moment are in fact foggy. And it's, it's that fog that's been trapping the photons and allowing the photons to push on the gas so around 400,000 years, all of a sudden, the fogginess of the early universe clears and the universe becomes truly transparent at that time and the light can no longer push on the gas. And the gas is then free to move under the influence of gravity fully. And what it does is it begins to fall in and not bounce back out again, but it begins to fall into those pockets of dark matter that exert the greater gravitational tug. And it takes a while. It takes about 40 or 50 million years. But after that length of time, the gas is now truly gathered in the center of these growing dark matter pockets, and the first stars are born. So the sound waves, in a way, are turning into the stars and galaxies that now populate the universe. So sound effectively is responsible for us existing at all. Um, you know, actually, Julian, I know you'd like to appropriate sound as the prime mover here. I'd love to. <laughs> and, but I'm going to be more strict about it. The prime mover, strangely enough, was the quantum fluctuations during inflation that made the universe inhomogeneous. Sound is one response to that inhomogeneity. And the formation of stars and galaxies is yet another consequence of the inhomogeneity. But, I mean, if you're wanting to focus on that particular aspect, which is necessary in a universe to make stars and galaxies, is inhomogeneity. That has many consequences. One of them is an acoustic era. The first 400,000 years is this acoustic era. And that's one response to the inhomogeneity. Um, and then as, as time goes by other phenomena occur as a result of that. Basically, as gravity begins to really do its thing, then the dark matter begins to collapse and form clumps, and the gas falls into the dark matter and it forms stars. But because there are small, medium, and large lumps, then the stars, in fact, are born in groups. 
And so groups form. But the groups are formed in groups of groups. And so they then come together to make a galaxy. And then the galaxies come together to make clusters of galaxies and so on in this wonderful hierarchy of structures, starting from small to large. And each of those had its acoustic counterpart you know, back in the early universe when the sound was uh, functioning, when it was, um, the light was able to couple to the gas and drive the sound waves. Having mentioned that these sound waves had harmonics and then in a way they turned, over time they turned into stars and galaxies, then you might wonder whether the same harmonic patterns are present in today's universe, 14 billion years later, seen in the distribution of galaxies. Do we see wave patterns in the patterns of galaxies? And the answer is we do, and it's difficult to see because the waves are so big but only about perhaps um, now, 10 years ago, the maps of the distribution of galaxies became sufficiently full and sufficiently big. You need to survey a region of space about 2 billion light years in extent, and you need to measure the positions of about a million galaxies. But when you do that and you have a map, which is 2 billion light years on a side with a million points in it, a million galaxies, and you analyze that, Bingo, you find exactly the same harmonic patterns that you witness, the same patterns present in today's universe. So that sound wave, those sound waves got frozen back then. They condensed into the galaxies, and the same patterns are still present around us. That was actually a beautiful scientific discovery because it really solidified this link between the present-day universe, which is filled with galaxies, is otherwise dark and empty, back to the time half a million years after the Big Bang, when the universe was in fact radically different. It was a brilliant, glowing, almost uniform gas with these sound waves pulsing through it. But here you had a bridge. The sound waves that you see on the microwave background are witnessable today in the pattern of galaxies. So the harmony of the spheres is not just an empty phrase. <laughs> no, it's, it's all around us. This seems like a very remote topic. We've been talking about looking so far away, you're looking back in time to the time of the early universe. But actually, you know, I'm sitting here in a, in a room looking out at trees and a, a lawn and a house. And you think about the matter that's in those things. There's protons and electrons. And if you track the very same matter that's in those trees and in those bricks back in time, you, obviously there's a time before the Earth formed, and prior to that and prior to that, the things that are around you and you yourself were at one time dispersed and playing a role in creating the music. So your own material was in fact back there participating in this sort of cosmic chord, if you like. And so it's not that remote. It's in our own history. It's sort of part of our lineage is this acoustic lineage because our material was in fact part of the the stuff of the orchestra, if you like. It's the stuff of the sound uh, that was occurring way back then. How wonderful. So we're all, albeit unknowingly, musicians in the cosmic orchestra. Yes, and the fundamental reason is we are part of the cosmos. You can't separate the two. Our lineage is the same as the lineage of everything else that's in the universe. And so our stuff has been participating just like the stars and galaxies. Amazing. Well, my mind is truly boggled by all of this mark that's been an inspiring or inspiring actually uh, you know i tease americans about um, 
what they do if they encounter something truly awesome because if a pair of trainers can be awesome then what word do you use for what we've just been talking about but i mean this to me is truly awesome it's mind-blowing to think of what's going on out there right now and what happened through that process i'm so grateful for you taking us on a tour of sound and vibration out there in the cosmos it's been amazing thank you so much mark for your time you're welcome jillian thank you Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you want to follow up on this, you can simply Google cosmic sounds or space sounds and you can encounter on YouTube and elsewhere on the Internet all sorts of sounds which have been recorded. They're either emulations, they're electromagnetic vibrations in the auditory spectrum or they're pitch shifted sounds, radio waves pitch shifted down. There are some extraordinary and beautiful sounds being made by the universe and they're worth exploring and listening to. I don't know about you. I'm off for a quiet cup of tea to let my brain cool down. I look forward to seeing you again next week. Sound Business is brought to you by The Sound Agency, designing effective business sound since 2003 and is co-produced by Podcast Network Solutions, a full-service podcast production company who are ready to help you plan, record, produce and promote your message with podcasting. To find out more about how The Sound Agency can boost your business with bespoke sound, and to grab your free copy of our four golden rules for sound, visit thesoundagency.com forward slash podcast.